Hey, this is a special announcement about a film called Stone Locals. It just premiered on August 27th. And if you're thinking to yourself, hey, that sounds like a climbing film, you wouldn't be wrong, but... Okay, you know how this podcast is kind of not really a climbing podcast? This film is sort of like that. It's a film about the soul of rock climbing, and it's told through the lens of five interwoven stories. And I bet you're asking yourself, what does the soul of rock climbing even look like? As climbing continues to grow, the people who anchor its core and community have more responsibility than ever before. In this new film, Patagonia gracefully tells the story of five of these anchors. I don't want to tell you too much, but I, your podcast host, am one of these five stories told. You know how we're always talking about vulnerability? Well, you can't preach what you don't practice. After you listen to this episode, go to the Patagonia YouTube channel and check out the full-length film, Stone Locals. This film is brought to you by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Deuter is known for fit, comfort, and ventilation. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in good fitting backpacks, so you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting Sendy, whether at the crag or in the Alpine. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive one free week. It helps support the show and it helps support you. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress. And tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Appalachian Gear Company, whose alpaca fleece hoodie won the 2019 Backpackers Editor's Choice Award. We've never actually won an award, but this one seems legit. 
The alpaca hoodie offers unmatched breathability, and you can wear it for days in comfort under a pack or harness, thanks to its durability and design. This lightweight, eco-friendly fabric is the sustainable performance piece that you didn't even know you were missing. You can take 10% off your order by using discount code for the love of climbing. Appalachian Gear Company stands by responsibly sourced alpaca fiber and this podcast. A Knot Like Infinity by North Bennett. 15 meters up Rutabaga, a moderate 5'9 splitter at the base of Squamish, BC's Stowamish Chief, stretches a traverse between cracks. The move crosses jugs and offers fine, slabby feet, but still, I find it exhilarating. In fact, for reasons related only slantwise to climbing, it is exactly the sort of move that I seek each time that I rope up. Last September, North Bennett sent me a climbing-themed personal essay and told me that he thought it wasn't sendy enough for most sports publications, but also a little too climby for others. And that's where we come in. As it turns out, it was actually just the sort of story that we'd share on this podcast. A Knot Like Infinity is putatively about seeking romance on Tinder and climbing with friends, but really takes on the topics of self-image, self-representation, and the value of friendship. This episode is narrated by our good friend Alexis Krauss, who in fact has a voice like an angel and should probably start doing books on tape or commercials or something, except she can't because she's a lead singer in a pretty famous band. You should check her out. We also ask some of you for your personal online or Tinder climbing relationship stories because, and let's be honest, even if you haven't used Tinder or social media, you've probably definitely thought about it. This is episode 25 of For the Love of Climbing, and it's also the end of season three. That feels kind of bananas to say out loud, but yeah, we're doing it. We're like a real podcast now, not a baby podcast. We're officially two. We graduated to toddler status. We're out there poddling around in the world, and we couldn't be more grateful for the last two years. A lot of you are new, and some of you have stuck around since the beginning, regardless of how long you've been here or what brought you in the first place. We're really glad you came. This podcast has been a space for everybody. And it would be an understatement to say that we couldn't do it without all of you. A big thank you to all of our guests for letting me stick a microphone in front of your face. I know that was awkward and I am sorry. Thank you to the companies who said, this is a cool thing and we want to support you because they paid for the gas to get to the place, to talk to the person, to make all of these episodes. That's Deuter USA, LA Outdoor, Gnarly Nutrition, Terracaya, Appalachian Gear Company, First Descent Coffee, and Patagonia. And thank you to our Patreon sponsors who believe in this podcast and the messages we want to share. We've got a big, bright, and bold new season coming up in two months, and we can't wait to share 10 new episodes with you in 2021. These are real people with important stories, and we aim to tell them in an honest way. Because this is 
not a climbing podcast. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sorta. This is a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability and talking openly about our pain. This podcast is sponsored by Dirtbag Climbers. Here's the show. I've been climbing outside for only three years, but already I possess and possessed by a very particular moment, one that I chase even though it scares me enough to have me considering other pastimes such as pickleball. The moment goes something like this. I'm well off the deck on the sharp end with my belayer out of sight. I might be on a dicey slab, midway through a tricky traverse, or just below the apex of an insecure bulge pole. Any place where a little bit of extra tact is required, but also where the moves are not so difficult as to become all-consuming. I'm not pumped, my mind has wiggle room. In a breath, my feet learn their weight. They feel heavier, suddenly more grippy, but also more improbable in their hold, bound as they are by gravity to be ground-seeking. My body's precarity becomes palpable, almost absurd. Does this really work, I wonder? I look down at my rope's weighty swing, watch it bob in the catch of my last piece of protection. I feel alone and vulnerable, but also self-reliant and, paradoxically, supported, protected by both rock and friend. Despite my fear, I will not die now, I think, and so I reach onward to the next move. I have used Tinder for about as long as I have enjoyed climbing, but it was only this past summer that I realized how the activities might be related. The idea hit me at the kitchen table, a few weeks after graduating college in my parents' house. I had returned home for a summer of nighttime bartending and daytime climbing, and in my unoccupied moments, found myself more tethered to my smartphone than ever before. At the smallest interval, be it the walk from one grocery aisle to another, the pause between customers at work, or even the page flip of a book, my phone beckoned me with promises of stimulation and connection. Tinder, charged as it is with the possibility of romance, proved to be the most irresistible app, but that morning delivered something different. There's no one around you, it said. Expand your discovery settings to see more people. There's no one around you? Above the text is my image, bound by a circle, pinging out amorous search signals like a lone satellite. Below, a button labeled Discovery Settings asks for my touch. Broaden your range, it suggests, or this lonely pinging might bind you forever. I stay on this page for quite some time. The pings ring out at a languorous pace, lagging enough to elicit my doubt about what will happen next. Addicted to the bursts of dopamine offered by each swipe, my brain wants more and will believe whatever notion might feed that hunger. Perhaps it imagines more people will appear if only I wait for one more ping as if those actually signify searching. My more deliberative self recognizes that the end of the stack means something positive, that I now have an actionable reason to stop wasting so much time on my phone. If this is all I'm going to see, then there's no reason to open the app. 
The third person, the one sitting by himself at a table set for six, recognizes both of these emotions, but also, and more poignantly, feels just plain lonely, and cannot help but feel sympathetic to that yearning, circle-bound avatar of isolation, thinking, yes, that is exactly how I feel again and again and again. Tinder knows how to engineer an addiction. The next day, my stack offers several new cards to swipe through, but only enough to fuel my desires without satisfying them. Indeed, every sunrise, sometimes every few hours, it replenishes this stack with just enough new profiles to keep me coming back. Some of the cards represent recent arrivals to my discovery area, but I notice several as repeats, and more than a few that live farther away than my app preferences supposedly allow. Nevertheless, I become hooked, thoughtlessly checking Tinder first thing in the morning and constantly throughout the day. Always, I race back to the bottom of its stack, where I met with the same disturbing screen, which begins to hit me like a wall that I know exists, but which I charge toward anyway, a real-life visitor to platform nine three-quarters. With time, it begins to occur to me that Tinder has stolen the stage upon which my hopes for connection dance. This is despite the paucity of real dates that I have successfully parlayed through the app, as all the real-life places where I might more easily meet a real-life human being, such as the climbing gym where I train or the craft brewery where I work. In fact, as I use the app more, people at these places begin to feel excessively real, lively, and dangerous. Rather than risk conversation with someone nearby, my imagination starts wandering to that person with a mountaineering photo who has not responded to my joke about the strange grammar in their bio, or the other one who seems vaguely to like art. Each profile's mix of text and image gives me just enough information to spin out lengthy fantasies and futures, all of which I know are fictitious, but whose appeal I nevertheless can't deny. Of course, these imaginations only confirm the poverty of my everyday reality, the one where I'm feeling increasingly alone as I drive from gym to work to home, sitting at my kitchen table and every day becoming more occupied by my phone. Luckily, cell data does not cover the whole map and swiping can't happen everywhere. That summer, my college friends and I skipped town at every opportunity to convene at some northwestern crag, soaring from our disparate outposts like pigeons home to each other and released at long last. The practice manifested a summer as disorienting as it was joyful, constituted as it was by extremes of loneliness and friendship, plastic and rock, the virtual and something verging more on the real. At a time when my non-climbing self felt so frequently dazed and digital, I found climbing had become redeeming in a way I'd resisted letting it be in the past. Half a year earlier, my rope buddy Gabe had begun teaching me how to place trad gear, yanking me up multi-pitch climbs and graciously fiddling with anchor examples over camp dinners. Our summer outings became a practicum of sorts, each one presenting new challenges for him to help guide me through. I got scared pulling his gear out on insecure traverses. I froze up on leads where I could find nary a placement for neither nut nor cam. I took a few subdued falls and I unearthed a lot about myself and this unique form of sportscraft. The most basic lesson of multi-pitch climbing might be, 
whatever you do on the wall, never untie your knot. On the wall, the rope connects climber to rock to belayer. It's what keeps everything off the ground, connected together into one protective system. Every rope recognizes that you and your partner are mortal individuals, but also stretches to transcend that narrowness. Its length measures not only distance, but trust too. And so long as you're on the wall, you're not alone. You have the solidity of the rock, the friction of your placements, the careful catch of your partner's hands. Ropes draw lines of relation and dependence. As a climber, I can tie in and reach beyond my virtual bubble. I can feel autonomous and in possession of my fate, but not totally so. Got me, I yell. Gotcha, North, yells Gabe, without fail. During my more ruminative Tinder moments, those wasted wallowing in sympathy with my digital image, I began locating some of the uncomfortable frictions between the realities of the app world and those of my embodied one. It seemed that my pain stemmed from an attachment to ideas, especially those centered on people mute ones who reciprocated desire without any threat of exposure, malleable ones who could be shaped to fit any fantasy. Maybe, I wondered, it was an illusion to think that I wanted to meet anyone at all. Maybe I wanted nothing more than for all of my rightward swipes to be reciprocated by the simulacrum of a stranger, whose images my imagination could anchor itself to only so that it may cast about fantasies of its own. Maybe the flimsy digital profiles of people were enough and anything greater was too real or simply too unpredictable. A while ago, I asked my friends to send me some of their most notable Tinder chats and what's most striking about them is their one-sidedness. Reading them, it seems as if many folks can't or won't comprehend that real people live on the other side of their chat boxes. Instead, matched Tinder users often write to some sort of robot designed for personal satisfaction, entertainment, or both. You hot. You would look hotter bouncing on my dick, read one. Have some drinks and fuck, asked another. Hello. You look very exotic, chimed a third. Oh man, I have a bad back from motocross and can't sleep alone, complained a fourth. Befuddled, my friend didn't reply. You're totally blowing it, the guy said. There are, of course, also many mundane instances of objectionable objectification, which I will spare you, and a fair share of dick pics. People seem convinced that having swiped right, the person on the other side of their screen is already theirs for the taking. Indeed, each has moved into the other's private stack. Conversation follows accordingly, that is, badly, with the sort of effrontery that I associate most strongly with narcissistic dicks, mostly male ones. This sense of entitlement is only heightened by the geographical distance separating Tinder users. Few real-life connections bind you to your matches, that's why the app exists in the first place, and anyone who's ever had a bad first date with a coworker or with a friend of a friend knows that this can be a boon. Only in our inboxes, however, are we realizing that this distance can form a sort of horrid armor, one that protects people just enough for them to reveal their empty reserves of empathy. 
One sees this not only in messages, but in actions outside the app, too. It isn't rare to be stood up, as a friend of mine was. When she checked the app for an explanation, she had been unmatched. Usually confident and self-assured, she was obviously hurt and pissed that someone would so brazenly waste her time. The guy who unmatched her probably didn't think twice about it, though, and no mutual friend could berate him for it. Tinder allowed him to act shitty without fallout, and he did, and probably still does. The consequences remain invisible. The climber cannot act so carelessly. Each of her decisions has its particular set of repercussions, and nearly all of those affect someone other than herself. When Gabe runs out of traverse, he exposes not only himself to a swinging fall, but he does so to me, his follower too. The same rule holds each time he chooses a bad line or a shitty belay stance, or if I lose my focus to the birds or clouds or shimmering leaves, someone is going to get scared or uncomfortable. A climbing partnership can blossom only on a fertile ground of trust, and trust requires mutual accountability. Neither Gabe nor I can forget that both of our lives hang on the same line. Each of us must remain real in the other's imagination. Any lapse and our trust might fray. When I re-downloaded Tinder this past spring, my friend Katie offered to make my profile. We were housemates at the time, and I trusted her, so I handed my phone over and I let her run wild. Having done this for several friends, she had developed a formula. One clear headshot, several photos showing interests, climbing, skiing, etc., and one or two attention-catching images that attest to personality. Unicycle jousting at Renaissance Fair, a photo of my rad spring break bowl cut. For the caption, she wrote something silly, offhand and short, the details of which I now forget. I did not get many matches with this profile. (laughs) Disappointed, I decided that the photos must not tell the right story, so I scavenged iPhoto for the visual seeds of a new one. I became a skateboarder, one who rides bulls and carves longboards on country roads, to little avail. I became a backpacker, hale and wholesome, who tends pygmy goats and casually ropes up every once in a while. Better, but still not great. How about a traveler who enjoys film and literature? That works okay, depending on who you're trying to match with. What if I throw in a photo of me hanging out with cool-looking friends? Will that imply social status and, by association, make me more attractive? Yes, to a degree. While Katie asked, how can I portray my friend as best as possible, I realized that I had begun chasing a new operating question, one that might go, how, using photos of myself, can I portray a person that will be likable at first glance? I began looking at all the photos of myself through the eyes of a distant, distracted stranger, wondering not only what story they might tell, but also how quickly and forcefully they might be able to tell it. The stakes felt high, as any bad profile would be seen once, rejected, and never seen again. It seemed that the answer to my new question would be whatever abbreviated, cultivated version of me would receive the most attention. It was whoever was pleasant and appealing, a touch interesting, even, but essentially, like anything designed for mass appeal, empty and bland, nothing more than an easily recognized type.
Months passed, and after many unsuccessful attempts to furnish such an answer, I was left not only with the sense that I was unwanted, but also with the conviction that I couldn't even appear as someone who could be. It seemed that somewhere in the app ether, there existed a panel of harsh judges, ruthlessly subjective yet unpersuadable and authoritative, who would not give me the results that I wanted. With enough solo stewing, these feelings seeped out from the app, leaving me with the twisted belief that my real self, the one that existed beyond my screen, was somehow essentially unappealing to others. The more time I spent absorbed by myself on my phone, I worried the more true this feeling would become. Someone who broods this much on Tinder is certainly not an interesting person to be around. She can't even appear to be. Swipe after swipe, I realized I was vanishing myself into digital bits, imagehood. Any robust sense of self that I previously possessed had faded away to considerations far more feeble, malleable, and vain appearances. In a psychic way, Tinder had flattened me into the image that it shares with the world, into a personality reducible to a handful of photos and 500 characters or less. It is frustrating and demeaning to feel this small. In time, I felt as if I might be dispensable, expendable into cyberspace, but with a leftward flick of someone else's thumb. Climbs do not subject their courtiers to such abstract assaults on self-esteem. As a type, they are more straightforward and immediate in their judgments. A person can either get up a pitch or she can't. As a climber, I meet the rock with my inescapable particularities, the strengths and frailties of both mind and body. There is no distortion, little adornment. Rocks don't care about looks. No matter how I appear to Squamish's Cobra Crack 514, it will hiss at me for the novice that I am. My fingers cannot grasp its thin lines. My skill cannot accommodate its steepness. I could take a picture of myself on its crux and share it everywhere, and people might believe it. They might see effort in my eyes, even strain in my forearms, but ultimately the image would be vacant, a single moment robbed of its truthful context. In any robust sense of the word, the image would lack meaning. The photographic theorist John Berger writes that, quote, a photograph isolates the appearances of a disconnected instant, and in life, meaning is not instantaneous. Meaning is discovered in what connects and cannot exist without development, end quote. I like to think of the climbing rope ascending, steady yet unsure, and how it tells a story. The meaning of a climb arises move by move, pitch by pitch, as a team works through a challenge together. In other words, meaning requires context. It demands a story anchored in truth. There is a tendency among my peers to feign a lack of seriousness on dating apps. It is both tragic and unhip to get caught caring too much about them, and only people seemingly new to the internet are brazen enough to risk any sort of sincerity. Seasoned users, in contrast, guard themselves with ironic distance. I don't know why I'm here, my friend made this for me, and not sure why I re-downloaded this app are all common bios to encounter among Tinder's stacks, which is curious since one can always delete the app or simply stop opening it, and yet the profiles remain up, active, searching, and swiping. It seems that a base level of FOMO is associated with abstention, 
a quite high one in fact. I know many people, myself included, who have deleted and re-downloaded the app several times, exactly for fear of missing out. A person can only hear so many success stories before the allure of the swipe becomes, again, irresistible. In August, I discovered that one of my best friends had been on several dates with someone new. I asked them where the two had met each other. Where do you think they scoffed? Where does anybody meet anyone these days? Tinder, you dummy. Even here, I could sense a bit of sheepish irony. Still, their success made my recent decision to delete Tinder feel childishly unwise, as if having learned that the rules of the game were unfair, I had quit rather than bend them to my advantage. I had been made a fool by a line of code. A few weeks later, my brother met someone on an elite version of Tinder. They are still together, six months hence. That I must pretend that this doesn't bother me a little makes for a second tier private pain that only twitches my fingers towards the app again. Were I to download it though, you can be sure that I wouldn't allude to any of this. In fact, even this essay would be too embarrassing to mention. In my bio, I might instead write something vague and ironically self-aware, something like, lol, I guess this is where people meet each other now. I don't know if it's possible to climb something with ironic distance. If irony requires a friction between two levels of signification, then I suppose that one could ironically scramble up something easy while feigning great effort. One could throw unnecessary heel hooks and scream superfluous. But that sort of performance would less protect one's ego than reveal as incredibly assholey. The opposite performance that is making a hard climb look easy is simply called skill, and there's nothing ironic about skill at all. Skill is the gift of earnest effort, the very sort of application that opposes ironic distance and reveals something of the self. You cannot master anything if you do not bring yourself near to it. For me, this makes slab one of the most sincere forms of climbing. On a trip to Index in Washington's Skykomish Valley this summer, Katie, Gabe, and I roped up for Spineless, 511A, a gently sloped granite arete that is as bare as it is beautiful. Gabe, calm and confident, slithered up the route with little issue, setting a top rope for Katie to follow, which she did. Watching her, I became nervous. Usually I'll try leading 5'11 sport without hesitation, but I am notoriously uncomfortable and unskilled at slab climbing. And this route challenged all of my weaknesses. I pictured my feet popping and my face grating down the granite. I imagined blowing a clip and swinging off into the nearby dihedral. I wondered how embarrassing it would be to lower down unsuccessfully and whether or not Gabe would climb it again to collect the draws if I did. Should I pull the rope north? Asked Katie, startling me out of my stressing. Uh, what do you think? Was it hard? Mm, just a little techie, she says. Like, it's definitely slab, but it's doable. I look up the arete again. It seems almost hikeably low angle, but also decidedly smooth. In all of its 80 feet, there are maybe four or five things which one might actually grab. Come on, North, you can lead it, urges Gabe. He knows that I often undercut myself. Leave it up, I say. I'll just give it a yield top rope go, you know what I mean? 
I don't feel good saying this. Secure on top rope, I now have little excuse for bad climbing or silly falls. My palms begin to sweat and I can feel my back tense. I tie in. What follows is 15 minutes of sliding, cussing, and hanging. Although it's morning and we're in the mountain's shade, nervous perspiration drips down my neck and out my armpits. The rock only gets more slippery. Halfway up, I wonder aloud whether or not I can even finish the route. Trust your feet more, yells Gabe, and get yourself closer to the wall. Move slower too. Let's go, Norte, I can hear Katie say, her tone a mix of amusement and boredom. I grunt and keep trying a set of moves that takes me off the route's one small shelf. I pop a tiny crimp and skitter my knuckles down the rock, stretch below the ledge, cuss, and try again. No dice. Embarrassing. I hang for a minute, inhale, close my eyes, exhale, reopen them. I try to forget that anyone is watching, focus on my hands chalking in my bag. With all the serenity I can muster, I cradle the arete and step my left foot out onto the slab. It holds. I raise my hand up to a corner knob, lean in on it, and smear my right foot higher. Each move urges my face closer to the rock. Soon, my eyes can focus only on the undulations at hand. With a slow focus, I keep bending and stretching my body up the arete, trying not to overgrip and keeping my cheek as close to the wall as I can. Its cool texture feels solid, supportive, equanimous. I keep the distances short. I climb. As far as I can imagine, nobody is watching. By the time the anchor welcomes me, my more acute frustrations have dropped away evaporated into the space between my feet and the ground. Still, though, I feel sheepish, first for climbing so poorly and second for being so unbearably conscious of being seen climbing so poorly. I focus on cleaning the anchor, threading the wrap rings, and loading my ATC for the rappel. When I land, I ask Katie and Gabe what we're climbing next. When fall came, Katie and I went tufa climbing in Leonidio, Greece. There, in sector Mars, limestone tufas hang from the wall in rocky dreadlocks, pulled straight from their overhanging roots and connected to their base wall by cartilage-like flanges. On some climbs, such as Babuki, 6B+, you might climb not only on tufas, but between them too. Only skiing powder has ever elicited so much simple joy in me. Quiet by nature, I began hooting as I lifted one leg into stemming position, leaned back on an underclean, clipped jaw, and then hit a Gaston pinch before swinging my feet over to the same side for a meaty smear. It was climbing in the most threeest of Ds, and I couldn't get enough. I've never seen you this excited, shouts Katie at one point, except maybe. Shaky at the end of the climb, I take and have Katie lower me. I bounce down along the tufas before I'm hanging in space, swinging, smiling. As I float down, I realize that so far from home, family, my work, and my friends, this might be the closest I get to embodying that stranded image at the base of my tinder stack. 
If I let myself think about those distances, I could get really lonely. But then the rope bobs and I remember how it runs from my harness to its limestone anchor and how my friend Katie holds the other end, keeping me up and alive, connected. When my feet touch the ground, I begin to fiddle with my catch-tightened knot, a figure eight that I notice looks kind of like infinity, a form of love. It tightens even as it strains. Kathy, here's another one. <laughs> um, climbing and dating. So mine is not a good story, but I'll make it quick. Um, I was getting to know slash dating somebody last year that I met through a climbing group on the Book of Faces. And um, never actually went climbing because we met in the winter in the northwest and we did have a trip planned but thanks to covid and some instances that happened it got canceled which was good because the dude ended up being a textbook narcissistic sociopath um and i have spent the last several months learning and healing and dealing with the psychological abuse and trauma that came from those few months of that individual. Um, so yeah, that was interesting, but I know there's good people out there. Um, there you go. Bye. My boyfriend and I met over Bumble almost a year and a half ago. I was pretty skeptical of online dating before and had never used any of the apps during college, but one of the first things we connected on was the fact that we both started climbing at the same place, which was my university's climbing wall in the recreation center. He had started there as a kid because he grew up in the area, but I hadn't started climbing until senior year of college when a friend invited me on a whim. We started climbing regularly together and became each other's main climbing partners. He got me into bouldering and I got him into rope climbing. When I asked him what we should say if people asked how we met, he said, climbing. I thought this was slightly inaccurate considering that we met over Bumble, but it just goes to show there's still a slight stigma around online dating. Hey, Kathy, I love your show. Thanks so much. Uh, so this story is about my boyfriend and I. We've been together about 10 months and we just moved in together. So we just sort of knew each other in college in Ohio because we had similar friend circles and it's because of the climbing community. It's just very small in Ohio. So we sort of knew each other. Then two and a half years ago, we re-met on Tinder and planned a bouldering date. So we went on this bouldering date and it just didn't go very well. It was like 45 minutes long. and. Um, he's a little introverted and I'm extroverted and I just don't think I really gave him much of a chance in that short amount of time. And then fast forward to last year, we both separately moved to Colorado and my friend happened to introduce me to him at a climbing gym here in Denver. And 
I was like, hey, I know you, you know, from the bouldering date from Ohio. And he and I actually ended up planning a Christmas day climbing trip last year to Shelf Road, which is a climbing area. And uh, yeah, two days later, he asked me to go climbing at the gym and we made veggies and eggs afterwards and watched an Alex Migos climbing video. And um, yeah, I guess I have uh, Tinder to thank for that and also just the Ohio climbing community and my friend here in Denver. So yeah, thanks Tinder. Thanks climbing. asked me to record this and I'm going to do it before I take it out because I'm too embarrassed. Um, I decided for my 30th birthday to go on a climbing trip and I wanted to relive my 20s. I scrolled through Bumble for a date for the weekend and I started talking to a guy and he didn't seem super interested um, and I ended up at a party. I met another guy and when I woke up in the morning the dude from Bumble was the guy's roommate. So needless to say, I definitely deleted Bumble after that and have never been more embarrassed in my life. I literally just had one weekend of needing to relive my 20s and messed it up really. When I showed up in Oregon for a summer internship with the US Geological Survey, I only wanted to do two things with my summer, do great science and go climb. I had the first thing covered through my internship, but the second one was tougher since I had no gear and I didn't know anyone in town. So I did what any self-respecting single climber in my 20s would do. I started swiping. That's how I met Eric. We hit it off right away and began a summer climbing romance. He belayed me on my first ever lead climb, and on one memorable occasion, he took me on my first multi-pitch sport climb, which I only found out about at the base of the climb. Summer ended far too quickly, and I moved back to California to finish graduate school. But our climbing sparks love was still going strong. That was more than three years ago, and we're still together. Through all the cruxes and the runouts of our relationship, we've always stayed on belay for one another. Not bad for what was supposed to be a Tinder climbing hookup. So I matched with this guy on Bumble and I was just looking to find some partners to climb some big mountains with me. And I ended up asking this fella if he wanted to climb Mount Rainier with me. He's like, yeah, I actually have a three day weekend. And I was like, well, actually I'm gonna do it in one day. So if you think you can keep up, let me know. He's like, all right, one day it is. So we checked each other's sort of street cred slash basically Instagram profiles. And we decided we had enough experience and we went over safety and got on the phone and started talking logistics. And we climbed for near in a day and it was epic. And now we are together a year and a half later. It's love. recently single. Woo! I got on Hinge. I was like, oh, maybe it'll be better than Tinder. I 
was wrong. I matched with a guy, we went on a date, he gave me a hug and I went to like pull back and he didn't, went in for the kiss. And I was like, mm, that's kind of gross, dude. Like, you're not gonna ask me, what, what are we doing here? So I don't text him for a while and then text me and I had just re-ruptured a disc in my back and he was like, oh, like I'll give you these CBD tinctures. They're really great. And I was like, cool. And then he was like, do you want to go climbing? And I was like, um, weren't we just talking about my back being like basically broken? And he's like, oh, I was just really hoping for a belay jockey. <laughs> so you want mull me with back spasms and painting down my legs to spend the whole day standing around playing you. Am I missing something? I'm nervous about recording this, but for openness and vulnerability, I wanted to send you this. Thank you for having an amazing podcast. And here's my story. I met a guy on plentyoffish.com five years ago and he loved climbing. So I started climbing even with my fear of heights. And he took me outside and it was amazing. The relationship started to deteriorate and I stopped having fun climbing because Every time we climbed, it was super unhealthy. And then we broke up, he moved on, and I found a new climbing partner. And she is the most supportive human I know. She's so strong and she kicks my ass all the time. But since having been climbing with just the ladies, it's been great. I've had such an amazing experience. And I started a ladies who climb shit group at our home gym. And hopefully we can start meeting up again once this pandemic is over. But I'm so happy to be part of this amazing community. I matched with another climber on Hinge during the lockdown orders, and after a few months of texting and video chatting, we decided to meet up in Boulder. Everything was going really well, and he asked if we should go get ice cream or check out another area. The answer here should always be ice cream, but wanting to spend more time with him, I said we should check out the other area first and then go for ice cream. Shortly after we got to the new Boulder, I ended up landing with my heel between two crash pads, and my foot started to swell almost immediately. After hours of trying to stay socially distant while climbing, at that point he had to give me a piggyback ride out of the area because I couldn't put any weight on my foot. He was super sweet about the whole situation, but I unfortunately found out the next day that I fractured my heel. While I definitely could have done without the injury, it was still one of the most fun first dates I've ever been on. And I know he listens to this podcast, so hey, I probably still owe you ice cream. So I'm in an open relationship. Uh, I'm very open about that. Uh, and I'm on Tinder. It's one of the first things on my profile, ethically non-monogamous in a long-term relationship. 
But not everybody likes to read the profiles. Uh, So I was chatting with a woman I'd matched with back and forth. We're talking about ice cream and a favorite ice cream place nearby. And she interrupts and says, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't actually read your profile. Um, You're not the kind of person I'm looking for. I was like, oh, no problem. I get it. It happens. Hey, you should bring your next date to this ice cream place. And she says, actually, I was hoping my next date would take me climbing. And I was like, oh, uh... How do you feel about platonic friendships and climbing partners? And she said, that sounds like a great idea. And we've been friends ever since, gone on several climbing trips together. Yay, Tinder! So I'd been climbing for about a year and I noticed a really cute guy working out at my gym. We'd always sort of flirted casually, but we like never even introduced ourselves, just made comments in passing. When I saw him on Tinder, I was super excited because I just hadn't worked up the nerve to talk to him in person yet. Um, His bio was literally, I remember, it was let's climb with an evergreen tree emoji. And I just can't even think of a more stereotypically climber bio. Um, We matched, and a month later, we went on our first group climbing trip to the Red in November. Um, There was lows of 30 degrees. It was so cold, we brought our zero-degree bags with us to the crag. Um, And then he kissed me goodbye in front of all of our mutual climbing friends. Fast forward today, and we are celebrating our three years at the end of October. So my online dating experience was back in the day when internet forums were a thing. I am from Mexico and I met this guy that lived in Mexico City. We started to talk to each other every day for a couple of months and then we decided to meet in Guadalajara and I had a lovely time with him. Like I really fell in love. We decided to make it official. We did it for three years I think and when I finished my university, I needed to write my thesis. So I decided, ha, I should move to Mexico City and be with him and finish my thesis. But I was lonely all the time because I didn't have any friends and I was too afraid to go out by myself because Mexico City is like a huge place and I am terrified of big cities. And I think that started to weigh in in the relationship and we also were depressed. Uh, We need to figure it out some things so yeah eventually we broke up but I am still grateful for that relationship it was my first uh, adult one and I learned a lot so yeah <laughs> that that's my story right now I'm married and if I wasn't I don't think that I would use online dating So this whole story starts with a pie competition that my best friends and I hosted. Um, There were a whole group of people there, and I was looking for an alpine partner for the following weekend. 
Um, nobody was free, they were all sport climbing, which I'm not really into. And so I made plans with literally the only person in the entire competition that was free that weekend to go climb the Petite. And we had a great time climbing. I was very pleasantly surprised by our dynamic. And um, after we climbed the Petite, we hooked up. Not really a thing that I normally do, hook up with a one-time random climbing partner and we have been together ever since for about a year and a half. Super happy, super good decision, have a pie competition. Hi everyone, greetings from Mexico City. I used to have a girlfriend who also was my climbing partner. We did all kind of stuff together, but our favorite hobby was climbing. We were really in a relationship after we broke up. It has been very difficult for me to find another climbing partner. So that I turned into indoor climbing. On the other hand, I have never used Tinder to find a climbing partner. I don't think Tinder is a real way to know people because you don't really know who's on the other side. I think there are more risks than benefits. Finally, I would like to say a quote that I really love. It says, A good climbing partnership is a rare and precious thing. It is a gift from the gods. Like a good marriage, a climbing partnership is more the result of luck and serendipity than a recent purpose. I wouldn't say that I was looking for a climbing partner on Tinder, but when I swiped right on his profile, I was definitely looking at his photo of him climbing in the red, and that got our conversation started, and our relationship started, and our climbing partnership started for the year that we dated. Um, it ended after a year, and I was heartbroken, and I think more devastating than the relationship, I was struggling with whether I could be a strong climber. Um, with or without him, and especially being a female climber, whether my strength came from myself or from having someone there to guide me. And I do think that it was a combination of both. And it's crazy to think that I don't think I would be the climber I am today if uh, I hadn't been on Tinder. So I have downloaded Tinder, I think, around four times this year, and mainly because I ran out of climbing partners at some point, and the first two times at least I was just pretty much just matching with climbers, even if I wouldn't find them so attractive on their pictures, just that they would give me a belay on my projects, and um, at some point I think the worst were like guys who would say that they were climbers and they actually wouldn't know how to belay at all. They have never go outside the boulder gym.
Claiming chemistry can be confused with true connection, which was the case with my most recent relationship. In an effort to date outside my climbing crew, I turned to apps. My thumb was used to impulsively swiping left with one exception, guys with trad gear. We met for a drink and he seemed normal enough, so naturally our next date was a sunset climb that we were both familiar with. We sat at the anchor in awe of the scenery and of each other. Neither of us made a move despite the cinematic moment and 30 meters off the ground, things seemed safe. They were easy. We set out for adventure on the regular, which was fun, and that's when we could truly be ourselves with one another. But we relied on those adventures to maintain our connection and things came crashing down. We were together a year before I realized my attraction did not extend beyond our adventures. I still love and admire the person that I got to know on the wall, but I became very frustrated, distanced, and lonely in the relationship despite his unconditional love. I realized we both deserve someone who brings their true self to the entire relationship, not just when our harnesses are on. First of all, I love you. Second of all, I really rarely ever record myself talking, so apologies if this is very awkward. And I'm also going to talk really fast because I want to keep it short for you to ease your editing stress. So long story short, I met the love of my life slash now lifelong climbing partner on Tinder, and I want to tell you about it. So I moved to New York City in January of 2016. I was moving from a small town in Australia. I grew up in a small town in California. And so Brooklyn in January was a terrifying, dark, cold place. And I immediately was like, well, I'm going to join Tinder because I need that. (laughs) And I immediately matched with this guy who I had seen at BKB before. Like I knew he was a climber. I knew he was a member. I had like walked past him and I was like, perfect. Like I know he's not lying about his Tinder profile. So I went on a date with him and it was the worst three hours of my social life overall. It was awful. He referred to me as a gypsy, which is a big no-no. He used the phrase akuna matata in everyday life, like just in regular speech. Like it was, it was just very strange. It ruined my climbing experience at that gym for a while because I would just see him all the time. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. So then I went on another Tinder date with another guy and was immediately was like, I can't date climbers. Like we're not matching with climbers anymore on this thing. And I found out that I had really nothing to talk about to him besides climbing. And so I was like, ah, dang it. So I went back to matching with climbers, which there are a surprising amount of on New York Tinder life. Um, And I matched this guy whose profile told me he was a vegan rock climbing Californian, which is how I also identify myself. And I met up with him at Barcade in Williamsburg. And I thought it was going to be like a one night fling. And we've been together for five years. And now we have a dog and a life. And he is the greatest person I've ever met. And so, yeah, now we climb together all the time. And it's amazing. So that's my Tinder story. Love you. So it's 
just before Christmas and this guy started following me on social media. And I'm like, okay, guy on social media, I see you. And we started talking and he was nice. I wasn't really looking for a nice guy. I went up north to go ice climbing in New Hampshire. And even though I was on a climbing trip, we talked every day. And by the time I flew home, I had a layover in Chicago when he said, I have a proposal. And then he offered to fly me out to Vegas to meet for the first time. And I told him I'd have to think about it. About five minutes later, I said, yes. A few weeks later, I was pretty nervous. My flight was delayed, so I got in later than expected. And we still went climbing. In the dark. We may or may not have gotten lost on the way back. I'll never tell. But by the second day of the trip, we were in a relationship. Just like that. Like, what? This was before we even did a multi-pitch, which I would never ask someone to be my girlfriend before doing at least one multi-pitch together, right? Anyway, fast forward to how do two people who live in vans at mostly opposite ends of the country date? There was a lot of back and forth, a lot of flights. One moment in particular that sticks out to me is leaving France last March. Things were kind of crazy. There was this whole pandemic happening and he's gonna be late for his flight. We hug and kiss goodbye. And then he says, love ya, before running off to TSA. I mean, come on. Now, every time he leaves me at airports, he just yells, I love you and runs away. Real mature. But honestly, the big not so secret is that I kind of love him too. I spent the better part of the year running off to every other corner of this country and it wasn't to avoid him, but I had a lot of shit to sift through and figure out. And I'm still figuring it out, but he's been pretty great. And it's kind of funny that one random online connection or whatever the fuck you want to call it, led to a whole lot more. I guess you could say I'm the luckiest. We'll be back in two months. Season four airs on May 1st, and I'm really gonna start working on my puns. Like, when life gives you melons, you're dyslexic. It's hard to explain puns to kleptomaniacs because they always take things literally. I can't believe I got fired from the calendar factory. All I did was take a day off. What do you call a bee that can't make up its mind? A maybe. How do you throw a space party? You plan it. What washes up on tiny beaches? Microwaves. Need an arc? I know a guy. What do you call the ghost of a chicken? A poultry geist. What did the grape say when it got stepped on? Nothing, but it let out a little wine. Okay, I'm done. Bye, see you in May. Even though I still have no idea what I'm doing, things are happening. And if you'd like to help out and support this podcast, please check out patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can sponsor us for as little as $1 per episode. It really helps keep this podcast going. And I'm so grateful for all of your help. Special shout out to Cameron McAlpine because he makes this thing sound good.
You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the planet. LA Outdoor personal care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. And thanks to Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. Until next time. 